So my name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here. My main job is to embarrass people and hopefully point us to Jesus a little bit. And this morning I'm going to be carrying on our Ephesians series. And I just want to start with um, something that all of us have done before. We've all experienced this before. And it's this. It's uh, when you meet someone new, which someone, some of you guys might have done this morning already, walking into this building or arriving at church. And as you meet them, you go through this kind of dance or routine that we do every single time where you say the same things and you ask the same questions to get to know these people. Hello, my name is Grant. What is your name? Shake hands or if you're a hugger, maybe you do the hug thing and you get to know the person a little bit. Then the next question you, you normally ask is... What do you do? The next thing that comes along. And generally there's some questions off of there. If they do something very interesting and out there or different, maybe you'll ask a ton of questions or you'll move on to the next thing. Where are you from? Did, is that what you said? Did I miss it, Megan? Okay. Where are you from? And there's this whole dance that we do and this whole routine. I tried for a while asking people, who are you? As question number two after I got the name. And it just had a bit of a weird vibe. People didn't really seem to enjoy it. It made me throw off the whole dance. I also do kind of enjoy asking, well, tell me something about yourself. But I think at the same time, that, that throws off the dance or the routine of the way we go through this. And it's a little bit too vague and open-ended. So people didn't really seem to enjoy that too much. But we ask all of these questions to get to know each other. Who are you? We try and almost box each other in a way and try and understand a little bit about what makes you you, the kind of person you are, to understand each other. And we are defined by all of these different things. And I'm sure even as I was throwing those questions out there, you've got a whole bunch of different ones in your mind that maybe you ask or like to be asked too. And there's a bunch of these things that define who we are. I was thinking of education. For some people in Durban, the school you went to is a really big deal. And there's some big rivalries between certain schools. Or maybe it's the university you were at or what you're studying. We've got some people in this church who uh, didn't do matric and others who've done this doctorate, you know, this incredible degree or something. Uh, we've got people of all sorts of different races in our church. In our country, with the history that we've got, race is a hugely defining part of our society. It's defined our history, it's defined our geography, it's defined our cultures in so many ways. And race does help us to understand ourselves and each other in some ways. What about family and friends, our social networks and the different connections that we've got? Or your relationship status, are you dating, single, divorced, married, maybe something else? What about your hobbies? Are you a surfer? Are you maybe a soccer player? Do you go to gym? Like one of those subcultures that maybe you find yourself in. Jerry over there is a little bit of a hobbyist, so he can tell you about all sorts of different things that he's done. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's the income bracket you fall into. Maybe it's something that someone else has said about you. All of these different things that kind of make up this composite of who we are. And I was thinking about myself, you know? All these things that make up who I am. I'm a man. I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I'm a friend, I'm a whole bunch of different things, and I used to be a copywriter at an advertising agency. I used to be a water polo player, I used to study at Howard College, I used to play with Lego and wet the bed, and when I was five, I used to have a desire to become a private investigator. So who am I? What makes me me, and what doesn't make me me? Who am I? What is at the core of my identity? And what is the other stuff that's just around who I really am? And how do we know what is the other stuff, the fuller stuff around the core identity and what is core and the truest things about me? Who I am is a really important question because who I am determines what I do. When we know who we are, we know what we should do in our lives. So I want you to ask, answer these two questions. Who are you? 
Maybe this is something you're not going to be able to quickly just do in your mind. Maybe you need to spend a little bit of time this afternoon thinking, who am I? Or filling in the blank, I am dot, dot, dot. How would you answer that question for yourself? I think for many of us, whether we've thought about this before or not, we've answered the question this way. I am my job, or I am my success or failure. You know, sometimes it's positive things that define us. Other times it's the negative things that shape how we see ourselves. Is it I am what I have, my possessions, my house, my car, my clothes. Or maybe I am my kids or my spouse or my lack of kids or my lack of a spouse. Are you your race, your gender, your sexuality, your income, your abilities, your inabilities, your sin, what other people says about you? Who are you? How do you see yourself? Maybe it's I'm a success or I'm a failure. I'm loved, I'm rejected, I'm valuable, I'm worthless, I'm somebody, I'm nobody. How would you fill those things in? Chris Everett was a former world number one tennis player who said in an interview, as her career ended, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. And to me, that's insane. I am not a tennis fan. Don't enjoy watching tennis on TV. I'm not very good at playing tennis. I don't enjoy the game too much. But for her, this was her life. She says, I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Who are you and what defines you? Because when Paul comes to this community of Ephesus and he plants this church, this Ephesian church, and he writes this letter to them years later, he's not writing to deal with the problem that's going on in the church. There's no sin issues or crazy leadership dynamics. There's no false teaching or heresy going on. He's writing to them explicitly to help them to understand who they are in Christ and what it looks like to live out that new identity they've got in him. So this is a really big deal for you and I, for all of us. Understanding who we are is massive. So if you've got a Bible, can I ask you to turn to Ephesians 1 and verse 3? Otherwise, it's going to come up on the screen behind me. And we're going to look a little bit today about identities, who you are and what you are called to live um, out in light of that. So Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That sentence is 202 words in the Greek, one sentence. 
One commentator that I was reading says, the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I have ever come across in the Greek language. I just wanted to say that because this is like the T-Rex of all Greek sentences in the Bible. This is the big one, you know, this is the amazing one. And it's probably going to take us like a little bit of time to fully digest and understand and chew on everything that he's saying in those 202 words in the Greek that we quickly just raced through. So I'm going to go through this for us now, and I'm hoping I can touch on some of the things Paul is saying, but you might need to go through this again and think through what he's saying just a little bit more. In this monstrous passage, from verse 1 to verse 14, we see Jesus by name or by title mentioned 15 times, and we see this idea of being in him mentioned 11 times in 14 verses. So it seems like Paul is up to something. It seems like he's really trying to focus us on who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what that means for us and now how we live in light of who he is and what he's done. This is what Paul is trying to do here. And we read a whole bunch of different phrases that tie in with us. In Christ, through Christ Jesus, in the beloved, through his blood and his grace which he lavished upon us. Paul is trying to redefine for us who we are and what this new life and new identity we have in Jesus is based on him. This is a massive thing that he's trying to communicate to us. N.T. Wright, another kind of Bible scholar, says Christians are not defined by skin color, by gender, by geographical location, or even, shockingly, by their good behavior. That's probably a bit of a mindset change for some of us. Nor are they defined by the particular type of religious feelings they may have. They, we, are defined in terms of the God they worship. That's a big idea for us. Who or what you worship defines who you are. So for us who are in Christ, Jesus is the one who defines who we are. So the words that he says about you are truer than the things that you do. So who is it that God says that you are inside of him? There's a whole bunch that we see in Ephesians 1. And we're just going to touch on a few this morning. But the first is that in Christ we are holy and blameless. And I think this is a really big mindset change for some of us. You could be sitting there today and you think, holy and blameless, me, that's crazy. You've got the nice Christian smile on today, but you know what you did last night or this morning or last week. And you think, how can I be called holy and blameless with the life that I've been living? And the reality is none of us are perfect in this room. You know, Our past and even present conditions probably can't be defined as holy and blameless But Paul is actually speaking from a future vantage point. He's saying that we will become holy and blameless one day. One day Jesus is going to return and he will make us new and he will make us perfect. The theological term is he will glorify us and we will be like him. But before that is our condition, he says that in him we are now holy and blameless already. Although those two words are maybe things that we can't say of ourselves, they are things that we can say about Jesus. You know, Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned in every way. He was perfect in absolutely every aspect of his humanity. And we can call him holy and blameless. And because Paul teaches that we are in him, those words can be spoken of us too, while we are becoming holy and blameless, as he changes us more and more into his image. Hebrews 10 verse 14 in the NIV is this verse that for me was life-changing when I first heard it. I remember a Sunday evening, I remember a guy named Craig McKenzie speaking. It was his first sermon. I remember him sharing this. And it was like the lights went on with these three ideas contained in this verse. And afterwards, I was house-sitting, I was hanging out with a few guys, and I made them all memorize it because I was so excited about this verse. And it says this, For by one sacrifice, 
He's talking about the cross. He, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, perfect forever those being made holy. Those are three massive life-changing ideas, if we can absorb them. And this is kind of the tension we see that is found in the reality that we are in Christ. Because we are at the same time saints and sinners. We are both. Our identity in Christ is saints. That is given to us from heaven. But the reality of the life we live often so looks different to what God calls us or what he speaks over our lives. But in Jesus, we have been made perfect forever. That's a crazy truth that God speaks over us. In him by that one sacrifice. And the one sacrifice is also really important because it's pointing to Jesus and the cross. What he did in the cross in that moment was enough for all time. We don't have to add anything to that. He did it all, and in him we are made perfect forever. And that's how God sees us and how God treats us in Christ. If you imagine God looking down with this bird's eye view on this room now, he would see you as perfect forever. But at the same time, we're in this process of sanctification, which is a theological term, meaning we are being made more like Jesus. We're being made into his image. We are called holy and blameless, but we are being made holy and blameless by what he is doing in our lives. You are called holy and blameless now, perfect forever now, but it ends saying being made holy. We are in this process or work that God is doing in us. So the identity we have is holy and blameless, but the destination we have is also holy and blameless as we work this out and we head in that direction. And this is one of the tensions that the book of Ephesians is all about. The second big idea here is that we are blessed. In verse 3, Paul mentions this quite a few times, but he says we are blessed. And I know that you've all noticed this before on social media. Someone goes away on holiday, they're lying by a pool, they're lying by a beach, they've got a cocktail in hand, they say hashtag blessed along with a whole bunch of other hashtags, and you're at work, it's monotonous, you're looking on your phone because you're bored and you want a little break from what you're doing, and they're on some beach somewhere sipping a cocktail, and you think, how have they gotten life so right, and I'm here in this office right now? It's a crazy situation. That's obviously not what Paul is talking about now. He's saying whether you're living your best life now on some beach or whether you're in this monotonous office situation, we can be blessed in Christ. That's what he's saying. But this blessing doesn't necessarily promise us health or wealth. It doesn't promise we'll never get sick. It doesn't promise we're going to be wealthy or all our dreams are going to come true or we're never going to suffer or have hardship. That is not what Paul is saying when he talks about us being blessed in Christ. And I really want to say that because I think some of us in this room have been taught that lie in church. We've been taught that lie by preachers that if we are in Christ, then life is going to be smooth sailing. And if something goes wrong, it's because you've sinned. It's because you've messed up. It's because you've done something wrong. And now God is punishing you. God is getting you back for your sin. God is getting you back for your mistakes. And now you must suffer. That is a lie. Just look at Jesus' life. Look at how Jesus' life ended. The perfect person suffered and went through a tough life. For you and I, we can be blessed in Christ and go through the ups and downs of life. So what Paul is trying to say is when we are blessed in Jesus with every spiritual blessing, which is quite a crazy thing to think, that that is yours now if you are in Christ. He's talking about our relationship with God. He's talking about the fact that we can know God and be reconciled to God and have a new life with God. He's saying to us that through the tough times and the good times, God is with us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He is always there. 
And I think probably for all of us, we've got this coveting inside of us where we're always reaching for something else, always trying to get something else. And what Paul is saying to us is that the things that matter most aren't things that we have to reach for or earn or own or try to take hold of because we already have them in Christ. Everything that really matters is ours in Him. You've got it already in Christ. You are blessed. The third thing is we are chosen. Verse 4 talks about this idea, and it's an amazing promise. It's so affirming to be chosen. I mean, think about it. Being chosen for a job, being chosen for a promotion, being chosen romantically. Um, I've said shamefully here uh, when I've preached before that I used to be one of the guys who was not chosen for sports teams. I was like the last or second to last pick, depending who was on the field that day. Being chosen for a sports team is a very affirming thing. But here in Ephesians 1 we're reading that God chooses us which is an amazing thing to think about. And I don't know every story in this room, but I just thought of your story or your situation right now is one of rejection. You feel rejected by someone or something. It could be your parents, your family, at work, by a romantic partner, by something else. If you feel rejected or if the narrative of your life has been one of rejection, how amazing is it that God chooses you? If you feel like you've been overlooked, if you feel like you've been pushed away, if you feel like you haven't been seen, the thought that the king of the universe sees you. It's not like he does this at random. That God sees you in the crowd of all people throughout time because you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. Before time began, God saw you. He knew you. He chose you. How amazingly loving is that? He saw you and knew you and said, I pick you, Pascal. I pick you. I choose you. Come and be mine. That's an amazing promise. It shows us that we have great worth. We have great value and that we are seen by the King. And God chooses us before the foundations of the earth, before we had done anything, before we were born, before we had done right or wrong, before we had achieved or failed in any way. He saw you and He chose you. And that gives us two really huge reasons to hope. The first is this, is if you fail and mess up in a small or a big way, we don't have to worry that we're going to be rejected by Jesus. I think some of us worry about that or have worried about that in the past. Now, I'm doing well at the moment, but if I really mess up, I think Jesus is going to push me away. We almost think in some ways like God maybe chose us before the foundations of the earth, but he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> he kind of chose at random. There are a lot of people that were going to exist, but listen, he probably doesn't know. He did this random sample, and if I mess up, God might see who I really am and decide that I'm not worth choosing and unchoose me and kick me off the team and reject me. No, no, God knew you, and he chose you. And he accepts you, and he will keep you, and he won't reject you. The second thing is he chose you before the foundations of the earth, knowing everything. Meaning he knew all of your flaws, all of your failures, all of your sins, everything past, now, present, and future. He knew it all, and he chose you anyway. So that means you don't have to think that God is going to blush at some of the stuff that you have done. God knows it all. God has seen it all. You don't have to stress him out with your sin or your situation. He chose you knowing what you would face to be his own. You have been chosen by God and nothing can disqualify you if you are in him. The next thing is that he chose us to be adopted as sons and daughters. And this is huge, you know. The thought that we have been adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters means that we have all the rights or the privileges that belong to the father's children. And one of the things that that means is that everything that the father says to Jesus is true of us and him. So one of the 
incredible moments of Jesus' story is his baptism. You can read it in Luke 3.22. But there in that moment, as Jesus goes under the water, the Spirit descends on him as a dove, and the Father speaks these words over him. You are my son, identity, who I love, affection, with whom I'm well pleased, affirmation. And the fact is, if you are in Christ today, he says those same things to you. You are my son or daughter, who I love, who I like, and I'm pleased with you. I don't know if you believe those things of yourself, but if you are in Christ, your identity is as a beloved son or daughter of God, who he likes and who he's pleased with. That's what the scriptures say. I think probably for a lot of us, we actually need to, in the mornings when we wake up, stand in front of that mirror and preach that to ourselves, you know. When we see ourselves in that glass, actually say, you don't feel like it today, Brian, but you are God's son, and he loves me, and he's pleased with me, and remind ourselves that throughout the day before that becomes true in our lives. The last thing I just want to say about this is, I don't know if you've noticed that Jesus didn't get his identity from what was horizontal, what was around him. He didn't get his identity from the culture, or from society, or from people, or from what he did. He didn't get his identity horizontally, he got it vertically. His identity came to him from the Father in heaven. And I want to ask, where are you looking for your identity? Where are you looking? Who are you looking to to define who you are? Is it the Father, or is it something else? The next thing, Ephesians 1 verse 7 and 8. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Redemption is not a word that we use a lot, but it means to be bought back from slavery at a price. Someone has paid a ransom to buy you out of the slavery or imprisonment that you are in. And I want you to see it this way. The gospel teaches us that Jesus has bought us back from slavery to sin. Where before we were in sin, we were slaves to sin, we couldn't get free from sin. Jesus has defeated the power of sin so that now we can live free. So if you picture, before you were in Christ, you were in a prison cell. You were shackled to the walls. Shackles around your arms, shackles around your legs. You were trapped, you couldn't get out. The gospel says that in Christ, we are completely set free. And you know those scenes that you see in the movies, where someone's been in prison for a long time, they've done something bad, and then that day comes where they can be set free, and the guard comes and opens the gate, and opens the thing, and takes off the shackles or the handcuffs, and lets them out, and they go, and they collect all of their possessions that they went into jail with, and then they go out to the door, and then all of a sudden they're just out of prison. They're no longer in the prison that they've been enslaved and trapped in for so long. That's what has happened to us in Jesus. We are set free from prison, from, from slavery. But what happens to us is in Christ we still sin and we still mess up. And I think what happens is as that happens we go, oh, I'm back in the prison. And we know the shackles so well, you know. We know what they feel like on our arms. Maybe it even seems like they're there. We know what it's like to have them around our legs. We know what it's like to be in that cold room with the bars and the lack of light or whatever it is. And when we sin and mess up, we feel we are back in prison. We are back in slavery. But the gospel says that the shackles are gone. If you look down, the shackles are gone. And if you turn in that cell, you'll see the prison bars have been blown off by the power of the cross. There is nothing keeping you in that room. So where before you were trapped and you had to stay in that space, now you're free to walk out. You're free to go and collect the things that you had when you went into prison and just walk out and be free. Your friend can collect you, can take you wherever you want to go. You are not slaves to sin. 
That's what Jesus has done. If you are in Christ, if you are struggling in sin today, the gospel says you are not shackled and you are not imprisoned. You can go free. Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are saved, we are believers, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ. And we've just spent, if you're new here, quite a few weeks looking at the Holy Spirit, and this idea that in Christ we have the seal of the Spirit on our lives is such a cool one. Looking at that idea of the seal, it is like a brand that a farmer would put on his cattle, you know, the things he owned, he would brand so everyone knew, oh, this belongs to that farmer. And in a sense, those were external brands, ours are more internal, it's like there's this holy, I don't know, heavenly UV light that could shine over your heart and pick up the seal, you are Christ, you are in him, you know. But this is talking about belonging. The seal means, the spirit means that you belong to him. And it's like the seal of the kingdom of God is stamped on your heart. For all time that crest is there to say that you belong to a new family. You are part of the family of God, chosen, adopted, and now sealed to be part of this king's family. And I want to ask you today, do you believe that? You know, there's a lot of things I'm throwing at us today, but these are all true of us in Christ. Do you believe that? You might know this, but do you feel this? Do you live in the reality of all these things of, the, of what Jesus has done for you? Because I think what happens so often is we know it. It's in here somewhere, but it doesn't change our daily lives. It doesn't change what we do. It doesn't change how we feel. It doesn't change how we see ourselves. It's like we've kind of got this identity amnesia or gospel amnesia. We keep forgetting who we really are in Christ. Now, I just want to ask, who in this room has seen 50 First Dates? Quite a few of you. Okay, I was going to say, it's not on Netflix. You can maybe try hire it this afternoon, but it's worth a watch. In it, Adam Sandler plays the very handsome veterinarian, Henry Roth, and he works at this kind of sea world place in Hawaii. And while working there, he's on his boat one day, and he's going around the island, and the boat breaks down, and he has to go to this cafe. And while he's in the cafe, he sees Drew Barrymore's character. And they have a bit of a flirty moment. They have a really great day together and make a plan. We're going to have breakfast again tomorrow. So he comes into the cafe the next day, excited to see her. He makes a joke based on what had happened the day before, something she would laugh at, just a little flirty comment, and she gives him nothing. She is not impressed at all. And to cut a long story short, they have a bit of a fight. She beats him up a bit. And he's completely confused at what is going on. He thought something was happening here. They had a connection. There's chemistry. And the restaurant owner, Sue, tells him that a year ago she'd been in an accident. She banged her head. And she's got a type of amnesia where every day she forgets what had happened the day before. So she is stuck in the 13th of October, the year before, every single day. And in true romantic comedy style, Adam Sandler's character decides that every day he is going to make her fall in love with him again. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, gents, can we get an Oh, that's so sweet. Isn't it? And he goes through a whole bunch of creative plans. How can I woo this woman who has no memory and every day will forget me? And he makes a videotape 
that every day when she wakes up, the first thing she does is puts it in the VCR, or sorry, for those of you who don't know, a DVD <laughs> that every day she can slip it. If you don't know, it's a video, okay? And she watches this that tells about who she is and about the accident and the damage it's done to her head and about how every day she forgets who she is and what has been going on in her life and footage of the two of them together and who she is now and what has been going on in her life to remind her to live in light of who she really is. I think for us, we almost need to do that. We need this gospel videotape every day as we wake up, reminding us that we are chosen, that we are blessed, that we are holy and blameless, that we are forgiven and redeemed, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we start the day thinking the right way, knowing who we are in Christ, not living completely forgetting the realities of what Jesus has done for us. We need to start the day that way. Over the last while, I've been meeting with a bunch of couples in the church who are wanting to get married, which is such a big and exciting thing. And I take it so seriously because of this reality that for me, I represent God in that moment, you know? And I don't want to make too much of a fuss about that, but I'm the guy who says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you know? I could transform a Shane and Sonia from two fiancés to a husband and wife in that moment. It's a really big responsibility. And on that day, being front and center with this couple is like a big moment because I say, and I pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Husband and Wife, you may kiss the bride. And in a moment, they're transformed from fiancés to a married couple. Husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs. They are in marriage where before they weren't. And the reality is, is when you get married, you are a rookie novice beginner. You don't know what you're doing at all, but you've got the title. You are a husband or a wife, you know? And from there, you have your first kiss and your first dance and your first meal and your first night together as husband and wife. You go on this holiday where you start your lives together, you set up your home, whatever it is, and you have all of these firsts, your first fight, your first realization that you aren't as great as you thought you were, <laughs> starting to notice your communication issues and maybe your money issues and your cleanliness issues or your hygiene, whatever it is, you know, you start to realize things about yourself that you didn't realize before. Rory laughed at that, so obviously, not going to comment on the hygiene thing, Rory, but whatever it is. And you realize that there's a lot that you need to grow in. But you are in marriage. You are a husband. You are a wife. Nothing is going to change whether you're good at it or bad at it. You are that. But the reality is, is over time we want to get better. I want to become a better husband to Shell. Shell wants to become a better wife to me. We want marriage to become this art form that we do together. And it's imperfect, but it's who we're becoming. And as we end today, the book of Ephesians is trying to stamp strongly into us who we are in Christ. And in that moment, for some of you today, maybe you need to begin the journey of following Jesus, but come in Christ because you're not in him now. In that moment, we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye to be Christians. But we're novices, we're rookies, we're beginners. We don't really know what we're doing. But over time, we're growing and learning and being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus and becoming like him until that moment where he returns and we are glorified and we are like him perfectly. But until that day, as we live out the reality that we are sinners and saints, we want to live into and lean into the new reality of who we already are in Christ and become that kind of person and become that kind of community together. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray and just end in worship.